So, <clears throat> I'd like to offer some reflections tonight uh, on our themes, on holding ourselves dear, and a little bit about metta and karuna, which this is included in. Holding yourself dear. And what are the hindrances to holding yourself dear? And does it even make any sense to you to hold yourself dear? I remember my mum, when I was first doing meditation teaching, she said, will you do some meditation with me? And so I offered her a little metta practice. And she said, oh, that's strange, offering it to myself. She said, that, that's, I'm not supposed to do that. Right? I don't feel worthy of that, she said. Other people are more worthy. Um, and I think a lot of us need training in holding ourselves dear, holding ourselves as dear as we might hold our cat, our baby, whoever it is we love. How does it even strike you, that word? I'm going to drop it into the quiet for you. Dear. Dear. You are dear. What happens when I say this? Do you know that you're dear? Do you walk around the corridors here with yourself, in relationship with yourself, knowing that you're dear? Or do you need reminding, training? And I can say that if someone, if a Dharma teacher had said that to me when I began my practice, I've been practicing maybe 23, 24 years, I'd say for the first 15 of those years, if someone had asked me that question, I would have cringed in my seat, squirmed on my cushion, twisted in contortion. <laughs> Wanting to push that idea away. Such was the gap in really, really knowing that. So if that's the case, or even if it just doesn't make sense, the idea just bounces off. You don't even cringe or squirm. It's just like, oh yeah. I want you to consider that, that there may be a journey for most of us and actually all of us because there's always more dearness we can know. This quality of metta, to hold something dear, to wish well, is immeasurable. It goes on and wider and deeper and deeper beyond what, we've, what we cannot imagine. So some of the hindrances to holding ourselves dear or doing the metta practice or having faith in the possibility that there is a kind of love that is more robust and not overwhelmed by hate, that is not its opposite, that is something 
of our deepest nature. It's not something we have to fabricate or construct or build. It's something that is there as we shed the skins of who we have thought we were. (coughs) Like the sun, as the clouds clear on a day, it's naturally radiant. It naturally extends. It's naturally suffusive in all directions. And nothing is excluded. I heard recently that... um, the, there's a story about the Buddha that he was known at the time um, as the solar friend, a friend like the sun. You know, yes, he's pointed to suffering as a doorway to freedom, but it didn't mean he was miserable. It meant in seeing that and going through that clearly, he let his radiance shine. He's the solar friend from the solar lineage. That's the sunshine. And that before he was depicted as this kind of statues, which came much later, based on Greek kind of statues, you can see that. He wasn't depicted in a human form. And there's one North Indian image um, where there's a tree, the tree of awakening. So the tree he sat under when he made his determination to find out what's possible for a human being in terms of freedom. And he made his determination. And there's a picture of the tree, but instead of a little human underneath, there's a big sunshine you know, with these rays coming off it. That's what's left. That's what's left. So what are the, some of the hindrances we might have encountered? Because that we want to see that illuminating sunshine, we could say, illuminating aspect of awareness, will shed light on those things that are in the way. Have you seen any today? Have you seen anything arise that's in the way of your naturally extending love and dearness to all things? (laughs) Hands up if you haven't, and you can come and swap places with me. Right? Anything that's in the way, whether it's something really mundane, like just distractedness. It's like, oh yeah, meta, very nice friendliness, but you know, I'd rather be thinking about the next episode of Peaky Blinders or something. You know. Right? Doesn't always hold our attention in the same way. It doesn't always call so loud. So distractedness, sleepiness, just we come tired, some of us. We've had busy lives, we've had difficult things, we've just had a full schedule. I'm tired. There is a cultivation that happens as we keep faith with the practice where we get more still. Just the agitation and restlessness of the mind is a hindrance to knowing ourselves as the solar friend. Because in this practice, we are waking up to our awakened nature that is radiant and wise. So the agitation of the mind, any of you find that, that flickering, twitching, something else? Uh, Yeah, meta sounds nice, that sounds good, but uh, something else. It's like looking for something more juicy, exciting, etc., etc. can be a hindrance. 
And as we stay with the practice, we get more still as we stay with the phrase, as we keep just putting in the groundwork of coming back again and again. There is something that can still. The agitation can relax. Takes a little time. We may have, you may have seen this somewhat today, or not yet. But as we still, we can stay steady with a more quiet topic of, of attention, like metta. Couple other hindrances. Um, ambivalence to love. I mean, most people would sign up, yes, please, to love, of, of which metta and karuna are two aspects. But the effect of love, and love is an emissary, we could say, of freedom, of complete freedom. One of the effects of love, when we're in the presence of real love, what happens? Not a love that wants something from us, or, you know, love where it's more conditional and they're trying to change us, or... But real love where the other, in this case, or ourself, is not trying to make us different. One, one story, I, this is really clear to me, I was in a temple opening um, in, you might have been there actually, in 1999, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know her then, and in, this, in the monasteries that Jaya was part of in Hemel Hempstead, Amravati Buddhist monastery, there was a big temple opening and they had all these um, old Thai monks and a few nuns. Um, but these great elders came as part of the celebration and there was this old master, I don't even remember what his name, but this really old Thai monk. He looked like he was in his 90s, I think he might have been, and he was sitting up with a bunch of others. And I was just in the crowd kind of thing. And he may have been pointed out, I'm not sure, but I could see this, you know. You know how sometimes in religious iconography you've got like little glows around people, halos and stuff. He had this kind of like... You know, and I don't see stuff like that, but he was just kind of like beaming, this little radiant soul. And I was really drawn. Something draws us about this radiance, this love. And I was drawn, and I, the, the ceremony finished, and I found myself wanting to go closer to pay respects, or I probably just wanted some of that, you know, whatever it was. And I was draw, drawn closer, and I got closer, and he, he wasn't trying to draw me, he wasn't pulling my attention, he didn't need that. But he was just beaming. And, and I got to about 20 feet, 20, maybe, maybe 10 yards away from him. And I thought, that's it, that's close enough. And I left. Don't know if that rings bells for any of you. But what was happening, what happens in the presence of real radiance that requires nothing of us is we start to melt, we start to soften, we start to dissolve. And why that, while that might sound very attractive, <laughs> it's also threatening for our sense of ourself that's had to shore itself up for good reason. And I know who I am and I know who the world is. And, right? 
it takes some courage, it takes some resource, and it takes some faith, actually, to be willing to dissolve, to be willing to melt, to... There might be tears, there might be... No resistance. So there can be ambivalence. There can also be distrust of love. I don't know if any of you have that. Sometimes in the presence of love, or even when it's being talked about. And I rem- again, similar, I, I, similar to my first story, people would talk about metta or benevolence or something like that, and I not only would cringe, I would kind of... Um, uh, kind of feel cynical, right? Kind of, you know, like a, as if my whole heart and mind would kind of shrivel up in cynicism. It's like, oh yeah, it's all very well for you, nice, comfortable folks, of which, of course, I'm one. But right, sitting there in Devon, being loving. What about real things, right? And it's a good question, but the cynicism didn't help. Right? There can be a distrust of love. Sometimes it has some things to do with our history of distrusting love because it wasn't there when we needed it. This may not be your story, but I put it there in case it is. It's like, I don't trust that loving light stuff. Yeah, it can touch certain things. It's nice, it feels good, but it doesn't really get to those really difficult things that I know or that you might know. So we can keep pushing it away because we hold loyal to the view that, no, not this. This is untouchable. This is my dungeon, cave, personal pain that this love doesn't touch. And it's only by trying it out to see if that really holds up when we willingly come back again and again, either because nothing else worked or because something draws us, something, the faith slowly starts to build that actually this love isn't something feeble or unrobust. This is something that can meet this in me and in you that I never thought could be met. So I offer that as one of the hindrances. And it can, it can come as a kind of a hatred sometimes. A wish to just um, annihilate the goodness. I remember one of my students, she's a beautiful, sincere woman in her practice, and as she went deeper, she said, gosh, I had this horrible thought happen. She said, on the bus, I could see this you know, I, I intend to practice metta and I you know, want to love all beings, but there was this beautiful little family on the bus and I could just feel this hatred arise, right? Like, I didn't have that. Why should you, the pushing away, the wish to not see? Because it pushed too much on her own pain. So I'm offering some of the trickier end of the hindrances right now because they arise for, uh, for some of us at different points. And if they do, I don't want you to take yourself off the map. 
the map is deep and broad. And whatever you bring, it's on it. It's on it. So holding yourself dear. Holding ourselves dear means we can see those things and they can be held in that same illuminating, bright, kind touch, actually. It takes time. The trust deepens. Some of us actually might be just unfolding right away. There aren't such painful obstacles arising right now, in which case, enjoy that. Let that happen. You don't have to look for trouble. Right? We're not looking for trouble in this practice. Yes, the Buddha pointed to suffering, but suffering isn't just that really contracted stuff. Suffering is just that disease and dis-ease of, mm, ah, had enough now. Right? Right to that level. Holding yourself dear. Yesterday I was speaking to another student and she said, gosh, I'm getting squeezed out of my life. She's very busy working, she has kids, a lovely woman, and she said, I'm getting squeezed out. I'm sort of, I'm not here, I'm doing my practice every day, but I'm, I'm not really here. And she said, as she started to come back to herself and start to remember what was the deepest thing in her heart, what she loved about practice, what she loved about life, she said, oh, when I squeeze myself out, when I'm not holding myself dear, she said, I go to work, I do my things, but everything becomes perfunctory. Everything becomes like a task. She says, and when it becomes like a task, everything becomes something that I want to be over. And there's no joy in it. The sacred goes out of the picture. When we don't hold ourselves dear, we squeeze ourselves out of the equation. The sacredness is gone. And we may never know or have a relationship with that word sacredness, but we could say the juice goes out. The meaning goes out. It lo we lose meaning and then we can fall into the despair and the pointlessness. So holding ourselves dear isn't just a nice thing to do in Devon. Holding ourselves dear is a critical thing for our sanity and for our meaning. Our meaning of when we get up in the morning. Can you hold yourself dear? Because this is the one that you are born with and will die with. And there may be other loves in between. And I wish that for you, friends and family and perhaps intimate others. But this is the one where the, invest, the relationship is well worth investing in. As one poet says, the one who has loved you all your life but you, who you have overlooked for another. Our fantasy or our preoccupation in, I think it's hasn't been all of our human history, but with the romantic relationship, which yes, of course, indeed can be beautiful <laughs> and often might not be, right? And if it's beautiful, I'm really happy for you. And this one, does she or he get squeezed out even of that? 
his yearning to deepen and know more of what it means to be at rest with himself. So I have a question for you which you can use your notebook for if you want. Um, I have a couple of questions. I'll give you a moment to respond. So you can switch your own inner lights back on. <coughs> and the first question is a funny worded, I'll explain it. it. The question is, what's right about not holding yourself dear? So everything I've just said is about it's good to hold yourself dear, right? But we can be loyal to the idea that actually, mm, gosh, if I held myself dear, I might become, you know, like a really selfish narcissistic. There used to be a, a, an in insult when I was growing up amongst a little crowd of teenage friends. An insult that you'd say about someone was, God, God, he really loves himself. Do you remember that one? God, she really loves herself. Uh, you know, meaning they were a little bit too into themselves, I think it meant. As if loving yourself was somehow inherently narcissistic might be but for you what comes up if I ask the question what's right about not holding yourself dear take a moment with that have a breath what might be those unconscious loyalties to not giving that kind of attention that you might give to a newborn Maybe you'd be afraid you'd never get anything done. Can't hold myself dear, there's work to be done. As if they're contrary. Take a moment, what's right about not holding yourself dear? What comes up for you? might percolate along a little bit later. Second question is, what hinders you from holding yourself dear? What hinders you from holding yourself dear? And it might be, I don't know how. Or oh, that's for sissies or, you know. hinders you from holding yourself dear? Maybe there's parts of you that you think should not be held dear. Or, or they never were held dear yet. Well, people told you they weren't dear. And the third and last question is, what's it like if you imagine into holding yourself dear? What's it like right now if you imagine into holding yourself dear? 
You can write the question and then breathe with it. Because this imagining, what's it like if you imagine into holding yourself dear? This imagining is the imagining of your toes and your belly and your chest and your heart and your skull. The whole of you. Everything that's made you, you. What's it like right now if you imagine holding yourself dear if this was allowed and accomplished? I think the Buddha held himself dear to be willing to make that determination to sit under the tree and say, I'm going to look really deeply. You have to really care to do that. Let's take another half a minute if there's anything else. What's what's it like if you imagine into holding yourself dear? Let your imagination want to pick that up later tonight but you can close the books for now holding yourself dear when I did it just now this little image came of these fingers kind of not my fingers fingers kind of caressing me on my poor old skull But imagine holding yourself dear like you might an elderly person whose health is frail. How you might tend to them. My mum recently, she's 92, she had a fall and had to have a hip replacement. And I was tending her and um, it became more intimate physically than we've had to do before. Right? happens sometimes. And uh, she has to wear these support stockings that are super tight to help the circulation go, right? Really, really tight. And in putting them on now for her, the skin is so delicate. It's so delicate that any, even, I had to take my rings off, any, even like my fingernail, any tiny, tiny, tiny miss on her skin, it becomes a wound and the wound doesn't heal because of the circulation and they be, some of them become abscesses or ulcers, ulcers, isn't it? It's tough being old. I mean, it's tough being young, but... <laughs> tending, tending. How would it be to tend to yourself in that way when you put your socks on? How often do you notice? Or tending, like I mentioned earlier, to the baby, to the young baby, where there's that awe in the beginning, with this little life is here at all, that it breathes, that it works, 
but its little stomach keeps going up. And you watch to see, wow, it's still, it keeps happening. And if I look away, will it still happen? Imagine how it would be to give yourself that kind of attention. Yeah, I know, I'm boring, I've seen it all before. We think we know, but respect, if we're working at all with unworthiness, respect, which literally means to look like spect, to look again. Respect, re-look, look again, look again. Don't be content with the gaze that has become conditioned from your history, from the culture. Respect, look again. Look again, and in Dharma practice we learn to look, we learn to train the attention in ways that aren't so clouded by our conditioning. We learn new ways of looking with mindfulness and investigation and metta. Why? Because these are simply better ways to live. They lead onward. They lead us not into diminishing circles where the juice goes out and by the time we're, what, you know, 25, we think we've seen it all. No, the looking again takes us out of the vicious circle that gets diminishing and smaller where we think we've seen it all. I know who I am, I know who the world is. Tell me something new, doubt you can. We look again. And as we practice, we might see glimpses of what is beyond those conditioned small frameworks. We get a glimpse. Maybe you looked outside today or saw the blossom and it struck you in a new way, right? Or, you know, check it out. Look again. You're not looking for a particular experience. You're looking to see what happens when the distractedness has rested. There's a really sweet quote, I, I'll see if I can find it, but this British philosopher, what's his name, the one with the French surname, Alain de Botton, is that his name? Alain, is it Alain? He had this nice book, Religion for Atheists, came out last year, and he had this very beautiful piece about, he said, perhaps our, all our unkind thoughts about ourselves or the others, all our judgments about them, he goes, perhaps that's nothing more than that our lenses have gotten occluded by tiredness and weariness and not seeing properly. Right? He understands the same principle about the looking, the seeing. So whether it's religion or not, it doesn't matter. We're training the lenses to freshen up to look again, to hold ourselves dear. So maybe it's dressing the elderly, maybe it's looking at the breath of the newborn, maybe it's the hands of the most attuned lover on your collarbones, on your ribs, where they may want to know every inch of you in love.
what would it be to apply that when we were massaging today? We are always in relationship with ourselves, and these Brahma Viharas, these four beautiful qualities, these that we're unpacking here, these are qualities about the world of relationship. We're always in relationship. We can't help it. If we think we've tried to not be, we can't. We're always in relationship with something. We're in relationship with our body, with our heart, with our mind. And here with Gaia House, with each other. We try and pull ourselves out of relationship because it was too damn painful. It doesn't work. We are always in relationship. And the teaching of these Brahma Viharas is this is the best way to live in relationship with ourselves and with each other. So please, tonight and tomorrow morning, um, listen and um, train how you speak to yourself, how you can train the attention to hold yourself dear. I tell this story sometimes, a couple of years ago, four years ago, I was on a retreat, a different kind of retreat, as a participant, and I was sharing a room with a Dutch woman, and the room had a partition down the middle, so I was on one side. She didn't know I was in the room. And she came back after lunch uh, for the break time where you could just have a few hours to you know, rest or whatever. And I heard her say, strangely in English, probably because the retreat was taught in English, so she's probably thinking in English at the time, but anyway, she said it in English. I heard her say to herself, and what shall we do now, my sweet love? She said it, they have this diminutive in Dutch that they put on the end of their names, like a or something. You know. And her name was Kyo. What shall we do now, dear Kyo? I suspect she waited to hear the response, <laughs> right? Can you imagine talking like that to yourself? Or as you open the door for yourself, either as the awestruck mother that hears this being that's alive for the time being, it got born, it's not here forever, it's a vulnerable thing, and right now it's still alive and it's still animated and it hasn't died yet, and here we are. Right? If you open the door with awe for yourself or like the lover who beckons her love forward or like tending to the elderly or like the host, the noble host who welcomes the noble guest. Come forth, dear one. Come and lay your bones down to sleep. Seriously, to know how to be in relationship with this one that we have often overlooked. And we may not think we overlook, we might think we're self-obsessed, but self-obsessed isn't the same thing. Because as we come more into holding ourselves dear in real relationship, this knocks on. This knocks on in widening circles. 
the moment I can hold this door open for myself out of respect that this being will not be here forever, that this relationship is one I do want to cultivate, then my eyes see you again as well. And I see there's some other ones out there who are alive and animated for the time being. Who, like me, want safety and peace and happiness and to know they're lovable and to be cherished. And I see you. And what drops away is my lenses of what can they do for me? What ought to happen here? Who's going to affirm me? Who's going to hate me? My fear drops away and I cut through to something more universal where we meet. We meet here. And that meeting is as the skins come off. The skins come off and it takes courage. We melt a little bit. It might feel more vulnerable or undefended, but boy, it's a good place to meet. We don't really meet anywhere else. We think we meet. We think we meet the other one, but we don't really. We meet our ideas about them. We meet our ideas about ourselves. And Dharma practice is respect. It's looking again and looking again and looking again. Yes, dealing with the hindrances and the pain and the aversion and the distractedness and training the mind because if I don't train the mind, we know what we get, don't we? You know what an untrained mind's like? Hang out with it long enough without being able to get distracted, an untrained mind is at best just unsatisfying. Although the odd fantasy might work or, you know, the odd brilliant idea. And at worst it can be hell. If the mind is just picking up and sniffing everything that comes into view. So out of compassion for ourselves, we train mind and that miraculously has a knock on to our care for each other and the world which we'll get to so I'll finish with a quote which was the last entry in the diary of a poet, poet, American poet called Raymond Carver, who died in the 80s, I think. And he was dying, and he knew he was dying of cancer, and the last entry read like this. He said, it's like he's having a conversation with himself. And he says, and did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved and to feel myself beloved on this earth. And did you get what you wanted from this life 
even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on this earth. Let's just sit for a minute together. May all beings meet themselves with kindness. May all beings be able to breathe out in safety. May all beings know respect and the joy of looking again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.